you've tuned into the Pearls of Wisdom podcast on Cold Tea Collective. As part of our fall editorial theme, we're focusing on business and entrepreneurship and present to you the Entrepreneur Series, where we feature stories from business founders of some well-known, much-loved, and unique brands and businesses in various industries. And you guessed it, all the founders we're speaking with are of Asian heritage. Now, throughout the series, you will learn not only the origin stories of these founders, but also about the day-to-day challenges, opportunities, lessons learned, and of course, some of the cultural nuances of starting and running these businesses. Now, if you yourself are an entrepreneur or know of any awesome businesses that should be featured either on our podcast, article, or other, email us at info at coldteacollective.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for more Pearls of Wisdom. Asian comedian has been cast on SNL. Like, you know, I'm both, that's awesome, but also how is it 2019? And this has happened, right? Um, So, yeah, I love the progress that we keep seeing being made. Um, And eventually there won't be as many firsts. I know. Right? Uh, But, I mean, every community has their first. Yeah, Um, Yeah, it has to happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and everybody does talk about that, that, time where you don't refer to any of these things as being like it's, it's just people will look back and think how did you ever re- like refer to these things as being so strange right this yeah. is so common to us now mm-hmm. so that's that's progress I mean you know 50 mm-hmm. years ago there's a lot of things that we look back on and go I can't believe that that was what was happening back mm-hmm. then so it's very cool what a time to be Asian honestly like it's <laughs> that's that's always what I go back to are you were you born and raised here I, yeah, so okay. born in Vancouver, raised yeah. in Richmond. Okay. I've lived in Vancouver or in the Mount Pleasant area for about, like, five yeah. years now. Yeah. Four and a half, five years now. Okay. It's interesting because I, we're actually recording, yeah, if that's no okay. Problem. Yeah. I, I grew up in Richmond, and mm-hmm. Richmond, for our listeners that are not familiar with it, is a community where Asians are not the minority. No. <laughs> Like, actually far from it. I would say the majority. Yeah, there's, there's pockets some, of Richmond that I think are a bit more, are, like, less Asian. But yeah. there's pockets where they are very Asian. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and it's so interesting, like, growing up in Richmond because um, the waves of migration have really influenced, I guess, people's perception of Richmond. Maybe, yeah. like, 15, 20 years ago, it was... I guess, like, still very, like, culturally diverse, but I would say a lot of, like, East Asian as well as South Asian communities. And there's a lot of, like, a huge, like, influx of Japanese because there's also a fishing community there that Mm -hmm. has some historical roots as well. Yeah. Um, And there's a lot of, like, Hapa, I would say, like, you know, half Japanese, half Canadian, like, families that have been there for generations. So I never really grew up thinking that I was the minority myself. I guess, like, when you kind of expand your horizons a little bit, move out of the, you know, these Asian enclaves, if you will, um, you start to realize, oh, like, I I guess other people did feel maybe marginalized or... Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, I was born and raised here as well. Mm -hmm. My parents immigrated to Canada for university. Interestingly, like, growing up, I think... Yeah, I was certainly, I lived in a neighborhood where I was a minority, but funny enough, I never cons- I never even noticed it. I never really huh. considered it. It was really funny. And I think only as we got older that perhaps it, it still became, it was never a thing that bothered me in a negative way. But then as you get older, you just start to notice that there are differences, yes. And mm-hmm. then 
you know, there's when when TV shows like Fresh Off the Boat come out, and you're like, oh, I was that kid with the thermos of like noodles. You're right. Like, but I never thought of it as, and I never was self conscious about it. Yeah. But uh, but I remember like watching a particular episode that was that highlighted that that you're mm -hmm. the kid that brings the stinky the stinky stuff to school. But yeah, so I, I had a bit of a different upbringing that way, and I don't know if that's colored how you know my adult life has gone so much, but. As I've gotten older, I've also become a lot more interested in like my culture, and you know, I've made trips back to Hong Kong with my mom, where she's mm -hmm. from, and and really taken quite an interest in how they grew up and what the cultures are like there now. And obviously, with Hong Kong and everything going on there now, mm -hmm. it's it's just it's very interesting to watch. But things that I think I didn't appreciate when I was younger, because you don't know any any better than that, yeah, right? I didn't know any different. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Was there a particular instance in your life or something that you were exposed to that really just kind of turned on the light bulb of like, wow, I'm actually really interested in learning about my, my culture and my history and my, and my family's background? I think it was traveling back because we were born here and um, I'm you know certain we went back when we were younger, but I feel like the first trip I went back when I was about 12 or 13 and it just was such a different, interesting culture change and environment change really, right? I mean, because being in the middle of Hong Kong is so immensely different than being, you know, here in North America. And so that was probably the first time. Um, and then subsequently, every time I've gone back, yeah, noticed more. Um, my husband's Caucasian and he's a real interest in, especially foods, right? Like that's the particular piece we love, but travel has really focused on learning more and understanding better, you know, where I've come from. Um, my dad's from Singapore, so, and he's an Indonesian. So yeah, just kind of learning a little bit here and there. And I think recognizing maybe as an adult that if I don't learn more about it now when my parents are around, I, that knowledge gets lost. Yeah, so it's it's just an interesting thing. The more you think about it, the more that piece becomes something you want to understand and pass on to, you know, future generations. And and that never was apparent to me. You know, you get mm -hmm. you just get caught up in the day to day, no, right? And you're so busy. But as you sit and think about it more, that is something that I would like to to just continue to grow. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely it's one of those things that uh, it's actually come up a lot in conversation with I guess people our generation. Here we are, you know, we are building our careers, or you know, you you've built quite a successful career in mm -hmm. the, in, in our eyes, and that you've done a lot of things. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Even when starting Cold Tea Collective, we were very much taking a look at what kind of impact do we want to make as well as how does this help me as an individual in the future in the mm -hmm. sense of help me understand who I am absolutely at the very core i think it's really important what you guys are doing because people like me who perhaps have just because we've grown up here have spent so much more time in a outside of our culture to be reintroduced to it and to also come into it, it through a lens now of the younger generation who are looking at things just slightly differently, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I want to learn about my culture, but I also want to learn about my culture now and how it's interpreted by people in my cohort, like people my age or younger, right? Yeah, so I think it's a really fascinating time because more and more people are sharing those stories, and that's how we all learn, is to mm -hmm. have more people like us come out and talk about what they're doing and where they've come from, for sure. Speaking of uh, origin stories, I'll 
go to um, share with our audience a little bit about your origin sure. story here, and okay. then of course, please you know fill in the blanks because okay. I know you know bios are just you know they're so condensed and it really yeah. just doesn't completely highlight all yeah. the awesomeness you've been able to <laughs> you know uh, bring or into the world. Maybe it does. Maybe it does cover. Oh, it. I don't know. <laughs> well, we're gonna unpack that. Okay. Then, so. Okay. Uh, welcome to the Pearls of Wisdom podcast by Cold Tea Collective. You're listening to episode four of the Entrepreneur Series, where we share stories of inspiring Asian entrepreneurs and their journeys. I'm Natasha Jung, your host for the podcast, and today I'm sitting down with Vivian McCormick, co-founder of Flax Sleep, a direct-to-consumer linen bedding company. But as I mentioned, she didn't start there. Vivian actually practiced law for over a decade before venturing into entrepreneurship, first with a national law firm and then with the Business Development Bank of Canada. But more than that, she is a community builder. Shortly after starting Flax Sleep, she also started working with Vancouver-based Spring Activator, which is an organization, this sounds really cool, that supports early-stage impact entrepreneurs, you're going to have to define that for us in a little Mm -hmm. bit, and the larger impact ecosystem with training and mentorship programs. She helps entrepreneurs learn how to raise investment capital and various ecosystem partners design and deliver programs to further Spring's goal of making impact in business mainstream. Now, she is also the co-founder of the Lady Business Summit, which is a conference focusing on technical support and community for women entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Did that just happen? It's it's happening next Friday. Oh my gosh. So shortly before it literally, yeah, Friday is the Lady Business Summit. Monday, I'll be on the panel. Tuesday, my co-founder will be on another panel. Oh my gosh. Getting out there. Okay. Yeah. yeah we we out here. We're yeah, hundred yeah. percent, which is, you know, goals. We set those goals and we're yes. yeah, knocking that one out of the park. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to, you know, we're talking initially first about your Asian identity and, yeah. and heritage and how you connect with that. How has that exploration of your identity influenced your work as a co-founder as well as, you know, working in the entrepreneurship space? That's a really good question. I think, you know, in contrasting to perhaps the beginning of my career where I was in a space that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily consider too much your heritage, perhaps, you know, other than the fact that most Asian children are encouraged to go that professional route. And so it was lawyer, doctor, dentist, right? Those are the mm-hmm. kind of three main accountant. Um, oh, yes. kind of the three, <laughs> we're kind of the four uh, main areas. And so I would say I kind of followed that path. And then as I've transitioned in entrepreneurship, you know, it has factored in the sense that, yes, there's a piece that, you know, being a professional was part of my identity carrying with it, I'm the oldest in my family, just carrying with it kind of that responsibility of, you know, the quote unquote definition of success, right? Having mm-hmm. having gone on to do something like that. And so transitioning into entrepreneurship, you know, especially when we were starting the business and it wasn't as visible, let's say, as it is now, I'm sure it was a bit more challenging to kind of conceptualize for people what we were doing. I mean, what do you mean you're going to sell betting? Like what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but since then, I think it has grown to a size where it is, you know, there is this recognizability of the brand. And so a lot of my parents' friends have bought linen sheets from us. Oh, and that's really nice. And my mom, I think, proudly spreading the word. And yeah, I think it was the transition piece, perhaps, where your identity comes into it. And anytime, I think, transitioning into entrepreneurship, your identity is very much tested because there is a, there's an imposter syndrome piece. There is a doubt, a daily doubt still, right? I mean, as I think most entrepreneurs encounter that 
at every stage of growth of your business, there's doubt. And that's the part that's exciting is that if you reach beyond what you're comfortable with, that's where the growth lies. Yeah, I, I, it's a pretty long-winded answer, but definitely identity tests generally and overall, and then layer on perhaps that piece of that familial expectation, the, hair, the cultural expectation of what success looks like. Uh, are certainly pieces that I, you know, I would say I didn't let it weigh too much on me because, you know, it's paralyzing if you do. But definitely it was in the back of my mind and something that when we started the business, uh, we joke around that the first year was like, just don't, just don't fail. Because mm -hmm. that would, you know, to us really be a tough thing. And I know failure is actually a good thing to encounter, but perhaps not in the first year of your business. <laughs> so, so definitely that, that's, that's where I would say it, it has come into play. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to touch upon f familial expectations because that's something that I've tried to understand for myself in the context of you know my own career transitions as well. Before we started recording the podcast, I was telling you about how I worked in, in marketing for a number of years, then I transitioned to media, then I transitioned to starting Cold Tea Collective. I also work in education too, career education because of all the career changes cool. I've had. <laughs> but uh, that being said, you know, I'm trying to like understand for myself too, like, you know, even if my mom or dad like never said outright, like, you know, you have to go to school for this or this mm -hmm. is what success looks like. Et cetera, et cetera. You have to give back to the family. Like they never said anything like that mm -hmm. outright to me. Mm -mm. But for me, I'm just also wondering, like, where did I get that from? And for you, like, was it the same? Like, was it something outright, or was it something more observed, or? Where do you think those familial expectations came from for you? You know, I think it's, you're right. Like, it's not, my family, I've been very fortunate. My family has provided every possible opportunity that I could have wanted to take to get to this point. And I think the expectation was more so the turn this into success, right? Like, make sure that you work hard so that at the end of the day, you achieve the goals that we want to see you achieve. And I think every prior generation is always trying to improve the life of their, of the future generations, right? So whether it's via immigration and living in a different country and, um, and I see it happening today. Like I have friends who have most recently transplanted from Hong Kong because they have young children and they've decided that that's not necessarily the place to raise them in going forward. Our parents did the same. My parents did the same. And so the expectation that I carry is, was just really like, you know, making sure I was self-sufficient, making sure that I was making, you know, a good amount of money to be able to support myself and have a family one day was always the idea in the back of my mind. As far as, you know, care for your parents and your family and that kind of thing, yeah, I think it's kind of intrinsically built in probably because we witnessed it happen. You know, I think generally speaking, in Asian communities, you don't see a lot of elders, you know, necessarily living in like a assisted living facility, like they live with their families. It's just something that we understand as being the norm. So I think it was, I think it's probably been a lot of like lead by example and just see what your families are doing and what families in your community are doing. And yeah, so I think that lucky for me, you know, my expectation, the expectation that has come from my family, which I think is different sometimes from others, is not so much the expectation that you will monetarily contribute back to your family, you know, um, but it's more that you will not have to rely on your family as much <laughs> as, as you maybe did when you were young, right? Because literally they, 
when we were growing up all the way through university, you know, if I didn't work, that would have been fine in the sense that they would have made sure that I had enough to have a really comfortable life and just focus on school, right? That's usually kind of how it goes. Like you just focus on school, don't worry about working, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to an age where I did want to work. And so I wanted to, yeah, I started working in restaurants and then all the way through to university did the same thing. Frankly, it was really good for my time management skills, right? and being social in addition to trying to like make sure I got the best education and uh, made the most of that. So yeah, the expectation was really just to make sure that I was doing something with all of the opportunity I've been given. Mm-hmm. And I think it's intrinsic. I mean, I think there's some expect, there's, it was certainly in my, in, when I was growing up, it was explicit. It was like, <laughs> you know. Study hard, work hard, get good grades. That was never an option to not. So that part definitely was hammered home. But as we got older, I think it's this maybe more subtle version of like, listen, we just want to make sure that you are taken care of when we're not here anymore. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about you. We exactly. don't have to. Yeah. 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 I love it. Tell me how Flax Sleep came about. Mm. So, um, yeah, I had, as you mentioned, I had worked for, I was working in law for a number of years, and I actually had decided to leave Business Development Bank of Canada a few months before Flax Sleep actually started, and I had decided that I was going to help entrepreneurs. What I witnessed when I was there as their lawyer was I saw a lot of people, BDC lends strictly to entrepreneurs, so small and medium-sized business. And what I saw happening was a lot of times people who were coming to borrow money from the bank would really struggle with the piece of being organized enough to be able to give a bank what they need to lend you money, mm-hmm. right? And so I realized that what seemed to be this common theme was that entrepreneurs, you know, they don't, most of them don't start a business in order to become a business person. They start a business because they're good at something and they decide they want to do it independently and not necessarily work in a job where they might do those same skills. Alternatively, they may completely change gears and do something really different, but not a lot of them are in the business of starting something so that they can go and get a loan or starting something so they can get investors in. Like, that's not what they do, right? It's just <laughs> I mean, a necessary evil. Yeah, it comes as part It of comes with the territory, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. And I think also when you're a successful entrepreneur, that actually sometimes is even amplifies the disorganization that you can encounter because I consider myself a pretty organized person in our business now. Like there's just so much happening that there are days where I'm like, okay, I have to sit down and do all the bookkeeping today because it's, you know, gotten out of control for three months. So I thought maybe I'll leave and help entrepreneurs instead. I wanted to actually have a bigger impact on entrepreneurs as opposed to just being part of the big system that helped them get money. So I leave my job and was working with, I had a few contracts um, to work with entrepreneurs and try to get them organized in their business. So kind of an operational role. And uh, about two months out of that, I was working on some contracts and uh, my co-founder, Anna, brought myself and my other co-founder, Juana, together one day. And she said, you know, I bought a bed recently and I went to try to find 
betting that I, you know, it was a very adult move, right? Like I, I, <laughs> I can't, so yeah, it was adulting. So, you know, it's, you know, it's a huge adulting move when you buy a mattress, right? Like oh, yeah. when you didn't take a mattress from your parents' house <laughs> during university <laughs> to move into your first place. Yeah. Right. So then you buy a mattress and, and, uh, and then you get a proper bed frame and you're like, okay, now I'm going to get some bedding. And she said, I cannot find what I want anywhere. I've gone into stores. I've gone online. I ended up on, you know, some large aggregator of goods that will remain nameless. And I, and whatever I ordered from there ended up being crap because I had no idea. Like at that point, you don't know what to choose. So Juana and I, who have known each other since law school and uh, are very good online shoppers, <laughs> we said, you know, it's probably like Anna doesn't shop, uh, didn't at that time shop online very much. She's a real like great curator of, of items from beautiful boutiques. And so we said, you just don't online shop very much. I'm sure that we can find you what you want. Mm-hmm. So we went away and did a little bit of research. And true enough, um, what she wanted, which was a, a natural fiber bedding, so she wanted linen, didn't really exist in Canada. And so if you were ordering from an online store in the US or the UK or Australia, which is generally where linen bedding companies were at the time, by the time you paid exchange and duties and shipping, you might as well walk into Pottery Barn and buy (laughs) a set of bedding, which will cost you for your whole bed over $1,000, right? It's like you buy the mattress for that price, you're going to buy linen bedding for that price? That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So we thought to ourselves, you know, she's not wrong. There is a gap perhaps in the market And maybe there's other people like us who want that kind of, they want something that is well-made and will last a long time, is a natural fiber, not synthetic, but they wanted it at an accessible price point. So that's that's where we got to, right? Mm -hmm. We decided there's, maybe there's a way to be able to bring items like this to the demographic of people like us. Uh, who are starting to change their minds about fast fashion and where we get our goods from and, you know, having fewer but fewer things but better things. But at the same time, not necessarily being in an income demographic where we could spend a lot, a lot, of, a lot of money on it. So more research to find a supplier and Flax Sleep is born. Um. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, I would say we started the business fall of 2017 and we launched and started selling in uh, spring of 2018. Our journey in between that time took us to Hong Kong for five days so that we could go uh, into Shenzhen to meet our manufacturer. And it was one of the most formative parts of our business was to take that trip kind of take a flying leap and say, okay, we're going to hole up in an Airbnb for five days. We sat down, we did a lot of planning while we were there and came home with a plan for where we were going to get our products from. We had a website that was in the works of being built. We had a brand that was being built. We will always remember that as a really formative piece of our startup journey, mm-hmm. I think. The, the fabric of your being. Totally. Sorry, I was like, I'm trying to think of these puns. Like, it's it was an overnight <laughs> success. Yes. Um, yes. A, sleeper, <laughs> a sleeper hit, if you will. <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Tell me more about the dynamics with you and your, your business partners. So it's really interesting. As I mentioned, uh, Juana and I have known each other since law school, which is longer than I care to admit. <laughs> Too many years ago. Well, that's a life. That's a different long life, time. I guess. Yeah, it's been a long time. Um, so we've known each other. I mean, we've known each other for sixteen years. And then Anna, we met 
probably ooh, five, six years ago, Anna was the GM of Bell Cafe in the Hotel Georgia. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Juana and I used to meet for lunch there because we worked downtown. And it was uh, the time that we got to see each other. And we would often linger quite a long time because at that point we were like, what else can we do with our lives? And we would spend <laughs> a lot of time brainstorming that. Anna was a very... Uh, there were hundreds of people who came into that cafe every day, and she knew most of them. Wow. Uh, so we just became friends. She would sit down with us and have a chat, and and then those chats turned into longer chats. And eventually we actually started, um, I started going to craft night at Anna's house, where she had this group of wonderful women get together, and everybody brought something they were working on, and you just would sit around, and I had just learned to knit, of all things, and so I was showing up at these craft nights, making like the simplest hat ever, but I was not very good at it, and there were people there who had been knitting for years, so they would kind of show me what I was, you know, doing wrong and stuff like that. So we just became friends, and then friends outside of work, quote-unquote. Yeah, so when we decided to do this, you know, I would say our excitement kind of took over in the sense that we just like dove head in. We also recognized that we're friends first and that to enter into a business relationship, I mean, some business relationships last longer than marriages. So we knew that we had to be really like ready for this. The average commitment. Totally. And the average the average life cycle probably of a successful business for its co-founders is like anywhere from seven to ten years, let's say. And then maybe it becomes a business that you guys run for the rest of your lives. So like you're gonna be intertwined for a long time. So, you know, in that trip in Hong Kong, we took some time to actually come up with like founder vows. So we're like, if a marriage, if you need vows in a marriage, you need vows in a business. And yes, so, I love that. You know, we, we kind of knew already, like one of I, one and I have known each other a long time and we already know what pushes each other's buttons, right? Like we're kind of like sisters. So we know how to piss each other off, but we also know how to really like love each other. And so we took some time to do that. And it's not like we go and look at them every day, but it was just something that set a tone that we have continued on throughout the course of our uh, work together in that we're very, and this is, this is another thing that's totally different than working in a corporate environment, right? Like we'll sit down and work together and we are, we're only together kind of part-time because a couple of us have stuff on the side and things like that. But we get down, we get to work together and some days like, we need about a half hour to clear everything out in the sense of like what's going on in the business, what are our frustrations, what's happening in our personal life that we kind of need to all know about each other so that we understand where we're coming from, right? Somebody's having a bad day. Somebody's concerned about this. Somebody's family had this happen. And that's not, I'd never encounter that in my, in my corporate world, right? You show up, you do your job and you go home and you might have people that you are friendly with at work, but nobody needs to unpack that kind of stuff in a corporate environment and they really don't want you to. Whereas for us, we make the rules. So that relationship is crucial. And I have to say that I think that I've become, and I would hope they would agree, a better communicator, a better understand, I better understand myself. And the piece that's really important for me is I actually, in interactions and in having the hard conversations, I've really learned to actually question myself first and not question whatever's happening around me and like kind of blame the people around me. It's like, no, what's going on here that is resulting in maybe something not going as well as I think it should vis-a-vis my partners. And we, we, we talk, you know, kind of sometimes ad nauseum about things. It's another thing that I think 
is great about co-founders, female co-founders. There's a really great book out there called Work Wife, which I recommend to everybody, which is about collaborating with other females and what that looks like. Because I think culturally and historically and society oftentimes makes people believe that women shouldn't work, don't work well together. And this book is really illustrative of the fact that we can take friendship and collaboration among women and actually utilize our strengths to bring that, you know, to make that even better, make our work even better than it could be. So we really take that to heart. Like we're just careful about every step and making sure that we're always checking in with each other, that we know what each other's needing and trying to accommodate as best as possible. What were, uh, if, if I may ask, mm-hmm. what were some of the vows that you made to, to oh your co-founders? Ooh. And and would you, <laughs> I mean, it's been a, it's been like a year and a half, it's I guess. It's been a, since, yeah, yeah would you early change that or? <laughs> no, I think, and I probably don't remember them word for word, but <laughs> let's say, um, oh, what did we come up with? You know, it wasn't like never go to bed mad, but it's kind of like that. It's like kind of making sure that we talk everything out uh, and what I cha- what else do we do? Yeah, we're extremely communicative, um, maybe sometimes to a fault. <laughs> Would I change it? No. I, I think it's really developed, though. Like, I think we had no idea how intertwined we could become. You know, we talk 24-7, right? Mm-hmm. Slack is both good and bad mm-hmm. for that. Oh, uh, we know. Right? Yeah, we so know we're on our Slack that. channels all the time. <laughs> but it's great because we can't sit together all day. So we do need to make decisions. And a lot of times we're doing it online. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as our communication, so the communication piece, also then we've started realizing we, there are pieces that don't work well electronically. Like you have to get on the phone and talk things through. Mm-hmm. It, you know, we get each other. We can probably finish each other's sentences, but there are some nuances that you don't get when it's that, you know, two-dimensional Slack channel, right? Yeah. It just doesn't doesn't come across. So our communication has just evolved in the sense that we recognize when that has to happen. We also recognize now when we need to say, um, respect everybody's having some downtime. So we actually, we call them uh, off hours. So like between the hours of 6 and 9 p.m., we try not to talk to each other unless it's about friendship. <laughs> and we have it like we have Slack for work. And if it is a friendship text that you want to send between six and nine, you send it on iMessage. So it's just like, uh, we've split separating yeah. that. Okay. We've separated that. And, and so we joke, but it's real. Like we're like, oh no, this is a friendship topic. And so we've just evolved our more general thoughts on how to communicate, how to treat each other. And those are really the most important things because if at the end of the day, we don't get that right, it doesn't really matter what we do in our business. And ultimately, as much as we try, I don't think it would be successful. What I love about that is, you know, oftentimes you hear about whether or not it's in a business that you run or like you work for another organization, there's this kind of misconception that you have to separate your professional self with your personal self. Mm. Um, And to hear about what you've been able to do with your co-founders really just kind of on the basis of friendship and how that's that's the foundation for your success is really really inspiring because, I mean, you hear about, you know, co-founders disbanding, you know, companies disbanding all the time because Mm -hmm. there's that misalignment in vision mm-hmm. or like how to do things. But, you know, to be able to ensure that that's still at the forefront mm-hmm. and remembering why you started yeah. in the first place and remembering that friendship is what will get you through like the next challenges yeah. is really cool to hear. It's basically impossible at this point for us to separate our personal and our professional lives. You know, for example, at the moment, Juana's on maternity leave 
and has a six-month-old baby, and we work from her house twice oh, a week so that. that we can all be together, mm-hmm. and but we're in her space, and she can, you know, so it, there's no way that we could separate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one thing we're really proud of. Mm-hmm. And again, it's something that in a corporate environment we don't get. So we get to make the rules, we get to intertwine personal and professional, and I think we're better for it, generally. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes get yeah we get we can get caught up sometimes and and some of our well the other thing that's really interesting is from a communication standpoint is we've had discussions that start professional but then actually have to kind of take a time out to go over into personal in order to understand why someone's coming from where they're coming from Mm -hmm. and we've had to say to each other I'm telling you this, or this is my opinion because I'm your friend, not because you're my business partner. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, we can look at it from a different lens and go, okay, as my business partner, if you were telling me this, I'd be real pissed. But as my friend, the fact that you're giving me your opinion on this like, means that you care and that it's coming from like a place of love. And so I can take that I can take that opinion and process it in a really different way than I would if it was simply that we were partners. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. Like it, it, it's not ever something that I would have considered being able to do or even having the opportunity to do. So very happy about that now. Do you think that you're able to have these types of conversations or like what I seem to, well, I guess I'm kind of interpreting it as kind of like elevated relationships with your co-founders if you weren't, I guess, if you hadn't done all this other stuff in your career previously? That's a super good question. I think, well, one, I think that my my professional background um, and, and a bit of my demeanor just generally is I'm a bit of a, like, in crisis mode, I get into, like, a just stick your head down and do the work and get things done. So crisis mode for me kind of, like I, I kind of like detach from myself and I like float above myself and just like get her done. Yeah. And that's a little bit bringing that to this business and to this, and to these relationships now sometimes can be helpful because, you know, we are three fairly measured people. So we don't lose our heads about things. There's not a lot of drama, which means we can get things done in a productive way. I think a bit differently because my educational background and the work I did before requires a lot of analytical thinking. And so, yeah, I don't, I mean, I do some of the things on gut feel, obviously, but there's always a bit of an overarching analytical piece to it that, you know, I think doesn't come necessarily naturally to all entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. But then for me, there's a lot of things that don't come naturally to me that I think are really important as an entrepreneur. The very first one I will tell you is like that risk taking piece. Because as a lawyer, you're always trying to figure out how to avoid risk. Mm -hmm. And so that has been a real interesting growth point to run your business differently than you would say advise someone else to run their business if you were just their lawyer. I've spoken with groups of, I would almost say they're like Gen Zers, right? They're they're in their early 20s and they want to start businesses. And I'm always like, you know what? I totally hear you. And frankly, like I just did a, with Spring, I just helped run a pitch competition for they were as young as 14. They oh were goodness. high school kids. And it was so cool. Sounds adorable. Right? Too. I was like 20, <laughs> 23 years younger than me, and you're 
planning your businesses already. Like, geez, I, you know, I feel so behind in some ways. Oh my gosh. But when I speak to people in their early twenties who are just fresh out of school and they're in this, and they're in the job that they are trained for and yeah, they hate it, but, and they want to start something on their own. Sometimes I say, you know, I don't regret There were definitely days, obviously, where I would sit in my office and think about what I could possibly invent to not have to work in this job anymore, (laughs) right? But like, totally, like, what am I going to, what am I going to come up with here? But I also don't regret any of it because it gave me so much training, not only to see what can go wrong, to watch a lot of like, I did, I worked on a lot of huge transactions. So like, you know, just the risk that comes with those things and trying to run all of that. And frankly, just the hard work that it took, like a lot of hours and a lot of sacrifice, a lot of like social sacrifice and all of those things really have helped shape how I run a business. And if I didn't have that background, if I hadn't done the quote unquote grunt work and if I hadn't been there, then I don't think I would know or feel like I would, I wouldn't know the feeling of certain pieces of entrepreneurship that are really hard. And you know what, honestly, maybe there's an, maybe the innocence is actually better. Like maybe not knowing also helps who knows, but I do know that when I look back on it, I, I don't, Having transitioned a career after over a decade in in more of a professional role, I don't regret that at all. I think it's like, it took the time, it took that amount of time to figure out not what I wanted to do, but maybe more like what I didn't want to do and then keep going from there, right? You kind of, you're like, I don't like this. Maybe this is a thing. And actually when you decide like, yeah, I don't like this. And then your brain starts to open up to all the other possibilities. Then you start seeing like what gets your heart beating really fast, Mm -hmm. right? And then you follow that path for a little bit. And I feel like the path in the last three years has been really winding for me. And there were definitely times where I was like flailing, like kind of like, what did I do? Where, what am I doing? But today feels a lot more settled in the sense that like, yes, it's busy and yes, it's hard work, but I know what I'm aiming at now. Mm -hmm. And the path is starting to like straighten itself out, which is awesome. You work a lot with uh, early stage entrepreneurs and, and businesses. And so I'm wondering if you've kind of noticed any patterns around how long it might take, you know, certain types of businesses or certain mm-hmm. types of founders even mm-hmm. um, to kind of get to that stage where things do kind of stabilize and they are, have more clarity on what they need to do and actually how to do it. Yeah, I think it definitely depends on the entrepreneur and a little bit of their background, right? Like for us, when we started our business, we knew how to do the really technical things like incorporate the business, start a bank account, get a loan, kind of get the bookkeeping under control. Other entrepreneurs start the complete opposite, where they're the creative and they understand how to get a product out the door that is going to sell. So, you know, the time period of how long it takes someone to settle in is... I think it really varies. I also think it depends on whether that founder is like the visionary kind of founder or whether they're like the doer kind of founder. And and I don't know, like I think mm-hmm. the crazy thing that I find now that I have had to get used to is that the minute you feel like you've mastered something, and it's not even that, the minute you figure out how to do something, typically speaking, whatever growth results from that 
in your business then brings about a whole bunch of more questions Mm -hmm. and a whole bunch more things you don't know how to do. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if anyone ever feels settled because if you did that, maybe your business isn't growing. Yeah. Right. Maybe you're not challenging yourself enough. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of entrepreneurs thrive on. I've had to learn to thrive on it Mm because I actually, you know, in law, you learn how to do something and then you do it and you keep, you keep, harnessing that and getting better at it and there's usually a right answer (laughs) and what's different now is like there's no right answer sometimes Mm -hmm. to how to you know what's the best digital marketing strategy what's the best way to get the word seriously and until you and as soon as you're like I gotta figure it out then somebody's going to switch it up on you, right? Whether yeah. it's an algorithm or whether it's the public or whatever. So, Or something just like, you know, something you can't control just changes in your 100%. industry or the way that, 100%. you know, yeah, the way that people interact with in, in your industry. Yeah. Got it. What is impact entrepreneurship and what impact businesses? That's so funny you ask that because I think, again, kind of in the eye of the beholder, basically Spring exists to help entrepreneurs who are changing the world. And, you know, that's implied for the better. I would hope most people would know that, but that is, that is it. Um, and so impact entrepreneurs and, and impact entrepreneurship are really focused on people who are trying to improve some manner of our society and how we live. Now, there are... UN Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 of them. I cannot list them off right now, but there are 17 of <laughs> them that are, <laughs> yeah, that are, um, if you were really to ask formally what an impact business is, it would be something that is driving towards one or more of those goals. Got so it. yeah, that's the most like formal look at it, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, candidly, I've been working for Spring since middle of 2018. And when I started, I really didn't know much about impact at all. And it's a continuous learning experience. And I actually think, you know, there are something called B Corp certification, which you can get for your business, which really drives a lot of that impactful, intentional business operation that perhaps was not as forefront as as much at the forefront in previous decades. Um, but B Corp certification is another way to kind of mark yourself as an impact-driven business. There's kind of more formal measures, and then there's just that overarching, like, you know, changing the world for the better using business. But it's funny because the even, like, B Corp requirements and measures, they change as well because this is one of those things where, like, continuous improvement. Mm, yeah, so, I didn't think about that part. Yeah, so, yeah, so impact, broadly speaking... Um, and the way that I like to look at it is that you could even take a business that was having a negative impact on the world. And, you know, you think most typically kind of about resource extraction businesses and stuff like that, like oil mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And there are businesses around the world now that are looking at different ways to kind of not only stop that negative piece, but then go into the positive, like find the positive impact in the in the industry they're already in. So, yeah, some people think about impactful businesses as being, like, only those that are, you know, speaking to a number of the UN SDGs. But some people will look at impact-driven businesses as somebody who's, and there's two camps, too. There's, like, sorry, two delineations, too. It's, like, 
you might be changing the world with what you're making, like your product or your service. You might also be impactful in the way you run your business. Oh, so in okay. the way you treat your people, in the way that you uh, source your supplies, yeah, in the way that you reduce your carbon footprint at any point in time of your supply chain and your distribution chain. So yeah, super broad, but, um, but definitely like overarching is using business for good. What kind of impact do you want to make on the world? Oh my gosh. <laughs> or maybe even like the business world, if that. Yeah, you know, when I, when I finished at BDC and I had said to my husband at the time, he kind of said like, what, what do you want to do with this? And I said, I just want to, I want to, I want to have more of an impact on people than I do right now in the sense that like, you know, as their lawyer, yes, I can be very helpful, but I didn't feel like I was necessarily in the day leaving a net positive benefit to the world, right? Where I think I can really be of help is to bring the, I realize now that I, I, I came out of a very technical professional industry in law, and I have a business background from before I went to law school, and I think those principles can be applied to the impact space in a way that just can help elevate and level up somebody who wants to do an impact-driven venture but may not have the technical skills that I can bring. Mm -hmm. So I will never regret going to law school. I will never regret, and you can't, they, nobody can ever take my law degree away from me. And it's really just being able to apply the knowledge I have to somebody who is trying to do something so good in the world but is missing certain pieces. With my work with Spring and you know some of the entrepreneurs that I work with outside of that and just even the Lady Business Summit and just meeting people for coffees and mentoring through FWE like my impact is to bring what I can what you know my my quote-unquote expertise which I previously thought had no value whatsoever to be honest what? like that's crazy. That's like the first thing that I would think about because <laughs> successful businesses are, at least from what I've yeah. seen, is you know when people like around the table bring some sort of like previous experience. Yeah. You know. Um, I just didn't know. Really? I was. I just thought to myself like, okay, yes, I could help people draft documents. Like that's how I thought about it. Like I could help people oh, make sure okay. the legal principles are right. Sure. But I started to realize that I had, that I could, I can bring strategy to it. I can, you know, I think a little bit differently and I, and law is a lot of problem solving. So I'm often looking at something from an analytical nature to say, okay, what is the best way to solve this particular issue? Or how do we avoid a problem? You know, mm, either way. Like mitigating that risk. Yeah. yeah. So I think my impact on the world and on business would be to ensure that I continue to bring those principles to people who bring something else to the table and just help them accelerate their growth of their business and the growth of their entrepreneurship journey um, in any way that I can. Excellent. And it sounds like you're definitely doing that with all the things that you're involved in. Um, our podcast is called Pearls of Wisdom. And so I, I have to ask you if you have a pearl of wisdom you want to drop on Woo! our listeners. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> could be about anything, about business, <laughs> life, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, and just or even just things you do in your day-to-day -day life. I have this one that I keep going back to right now because it is like where when on days where I feel, again, like I'm lacking in 
okay, backing up, uh, you know, when I, I've gone through so much schooling to get where I was, and so in the beginning of the entrepreneurship side and even the consulting side, I thought to myself, do I need to go back to school to learn things? Mm. And quickly realized that, like, I don't have the time for that, and, you know, <laughs> just jump in, right? Yeah. And so on days where I feel that I'm lacking in something, the thing that I keep coming back to in so many ways is that, like, something's better than nothing. So whether it's on the impact space, whether it's like my own environmental footprint, like whether it's any or, or, or how much progress I've made in the business or in my, you know, development of something to kind of keep going forward, there are some days where you have to be like, listen, something's better than nothing. So, you know, and I, and I'm one of those people that procrastinates until I can make something perfect, right? Like if oh. I can't, if I can't do <laughs> yeah, it perfectly, guilty. I don't want to do it. Right. And then the, the to-do list just piles up because you're like, or just do it. Right. So I need to be my own driver sometimes in thinking like something's better than nothing, just dive in and do it. Maybe it doesn't have to be perfect, although I really struggle with that one still. And, and in the impact space, when you are thinking about how do I leave a positive effect on the world mm -hmm. in the way I live, mm -hmm. if you're expecting everyone to be perfect in that realm, like nobody's going to do it. So when we talk about like waste aversion and, um, you know, what we eat and how much food we waste and those kinds of things, like, uh, you know, there are days where I'm a lot better at what I'm and more intentional about what I'm doing. And I bring my, you know, I bring my reusable coffee mug with me, like, and there are days where I don't. And, and so to not beat yourself up and trying to be perfect about it, I, that's the other way that I apply that something is better than nothing little nugget. There you go. Well, thank you so much You're for your welcome. time, Vivian. Um, Make sure, if you're in Vancouver, please get a ticket to come meet Vivian in person on September 23rd. And if, of course, at the Lady Business Summit, when is that again? That's yeah, September 20th. We've got some spots okay. left. Yeah, registration will close next Wednesday. Um, it's going to be great. Ladybusinessyvr.com is the website where we have all of our agenda and our speakers. And um, yeah, we're really, we're really excited to bring that group together. Excellent. So go to both the Lady Business Summit, as well as Cold Tea Collective's yes. Entrepreneur Series in Vancouver, happening September 23rd. Go to coldteacollective.com slash the dash entrepreneur dash series. And until next time, this has been the Pearls of Wisdom podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.